Welcome to Unveiling Apocalypse, a podcast about the book of Revelation. Well, hello, everyone. Um, today we are speaking with Robin Whitaker from Pilgrim Theological College. Um, well, I'll tell you a little bit about what, what, what you've done, tell you what you've done. Yeah. Um, you've, got a, you've written a monograph called Ekphrasis, Vision and Persuasion in the Book of Revelation. You're fairly <laughs> active in writing about Revelation, although you've written a few other things recently as well. And you, I understand you co-host a podcast named By the Well. Correct. Which is about... It's about preaching. So I co-host it with a Uniting Church minister and we talk about the biblical texts that are part of the Revised Common Lectionary, the cycle of readings that a lot of mainstream churches follow. Mm-hmm. And uh, we just try and give some insight into the biblical text to kind of help preachers think about themes and what they might notice when they prepare. Oh, fantastic. So you're a practitioner as well. Yes. In that sense, yes. which is which is always helpful. Yep. Um, so we'll we'll link um, to by the well in our um, podcast page for this. So welcome, Robin. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Whatever you feel like telling us. Okay. Uh, I now teach the New Testament. I grew up in a Christian family and first started studying theology in preparation for going into ministry, mm-hmm. uh, and fell in love with the Book of Revelation, partly. Uh, because it was mysterious to me. There's lots of strange symbols and things that don't make sense uh, or didn't make sense. Still, Some of them still don't. Um, and yet I found I, – I grew up in the Uniting Church here in Australia, Methodist before that in South Africa, and I found my church didn't really talk about this text mm-hmm. – and um, and yet what I heard from other places didn't always make sense to me. So, as you know, there are parts of the Bible that all of our traditions kind of overlook a bit. Yes. <laughs> and uh, for a lot of the more liberal or traditional churches, we don't look at this apocalyptic stuff very mm. much. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about what was in here. And that started a bit of a journey of preaching and teaching and eventually going and doing a PhD. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. Wow. Um, it seems to be a common theme, I think, with, with people who end up doing doctoral work or, or you know, study mm. that we're fascinated by this because no one else is talking about it. That's right. And we, we kind of want answers. We, there's a <laughs> curiosity there. And then we realise that no one has the answers, unfortunately. No, but that's one of the things I love about the Bible is, you know, whether you're studying it devotionally or academically, you can keep going back to it and there's always more to learn mm-hmm. and more to understand because, you know, we've never quite got it all. That's right, yeah. And, and, you know, our contexts and things shift which affect the way we read the text, of course. Yeah, definitely. So you obviously have done a doctoral thesis on Mm -hmm. the book of Revelation. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. What did you do? So I was curious about the way some of the images were working. So there's these very uh, vivid descriptions of Jesus in the opening chapter as the Son of Man, Mm -hmm. who has like a double-edged sword out of his mouth and shining eyes. Uh, I mean, that's just one of many quite strange but graphic images in the text. And I was curious about how they were functioning and why the author uh, had you know, decided to talk about God in that way or Jesus in that way or later in the text, the beast and the dragons in that way. Mm -hmm. And I was studying at the University of Chicago and uh, there's a really strong classics department there and and had friends working there and came across this concept of ekphrasis, which Mm -hmm. is a Greek word, to simply describe... So it's ekphrasis? Or ekphrasis. I think it's ekphrasis. Okay, because I've been pronouncing it wrong then. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's not clear, but the accent's on the first syllable in Greek, so Mm -hmm. yeah. 
a lot of people say egg fries. Is that what That's you? how I've been yeah, saying yeah. yeah. <laughs> Either egg fries, egg fries. Um, so it's a Greek word that literally means vivid description or excess of description mm-hmm. uh, that we get in these ancient Greek textbooks. That were school textbooks. So if you were at school in the first century, uh, you, you would have been exposed to these sort of tools and it was taught as a tool for how you how you write you make a text come alive by making it vivid and graphic and dramatic but ultimately it has a rhetorical function which is to appeal to emotions so that led me into a bit of a um I guess a a rabbit hole (laughs) uh, in the in my PhD of thinking about how this author John was using his descriptions to appeal to the emotions of the readers, mm-hmm. um, particularly those first audiences, and um, and what what those emotions might have been and, and what he was wanting to kind of elicit from them. Because on, on the surface, when you look at um, the discipline, mm. it looks like you're you know generally more interested in drawing the illusions and mm. figuring out you know where mm. they come from. But I suppose what you're saying here is it is there is a point to it. Yeah. So a lot of the unpacking of images does get into that nitty-gritty of like where does this particular image come from, so what resonances would it have? In the same way in contemporary culture, if you you know you cite a line, a line from a well-known pop song or mm-hmm. you have a cultural reference to a sport, like people then kind of know what you're talking about. Uh, so some of it is unpacking the way the nitty-gritty of all the images. But ultimately I was curious about what this author wanted to communicate. And, yeah. So so tell us a little bit more about this. Um, you, you're saying that ekphrasis <laughs> is, um, is something that is taught uh, or was a, shall we say, a common technique at the time. Yeah. Does that then imply that John is, well, the construct of the author John, mm-hmm. is perhaps better educated than most? I think it means he's averagely educated. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and this was one of the hurdles I actually had to overcome because, as, as you know, uh, the Greek in Revelation has been described as not very good. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so people have questioned how much education this author has. Uh, but what we know from ancient education is it, it was quite conservative in terms of quite standardised. Mm-hmm. So if you could read and write in Greek, even at the level this author can, mm-hmm. and we'll, we'll just call him John because that's way easier, yeah. <laughs> whichever John he is, we don't really know. Um, if you could read and write in Greek, it meant you'd, you'd done kind of the equivalent of secondary school in yeah. our system. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we think from what the people who work on ancient education, um, that included these early exercises, they're known as progomnasmata, which literally means early exercises, um, <laughs> in in rhetoric, mm-hmm. and that included how you'd write a comparison, how you'd write a character, um, moral um, sayings, that kind of stuff. And this was one of 12 or 14, depending on which textbook you had, uh, exercises that students would have practised. Mm. And, and obviously, um, l- like with any historical endeavours, this is there, there is a little bit of reconstructionism going on, of course. Yes. But that, that seems to be, you know, sort of a... The best we can get to at this point. Yeah, often um, when we're trying to place, you know, as you know, this this stuff historically, we're making educated guesses, mm. I would say. Yeah. We, we can't ever know for sure, but we're piecing bits of information together mm. from different places. Mm-hmm. So t- let's, let's talk a little bit about the implications then 
mm-hmm. of what you've been doing, right? Mm-hmm. With um, with um, ekphrasis. Yep. Um, well, should should we perhaps be saying visual exegesis? Like, you know, what are they part of the same coin? You know, what, what's yeah. what's happening here? That's a great question because visual exegesis has become quite a popular thing for people to talk about, mm-hmm. at least in scholarly circles. I don't yes. know if church people... Probably not. not. <laughs> um, and it can mean two things. It can mean paying attention to the visual elements in the text. And in that sense, I think that's exactly what I'm doing with mm-hmm. paying attention to this ekphrastic style of writing. Uh-huh. Um, but people also talk about visual exegesis in terms of actual artworks yes. on the text. So visual mediums that have come out as reflections on the text, and I think that's sure. something quite different. See, I, I would actually be calling those paratexts, personally. Oh, okay. Which um, that's I, helpful. I've seen some 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 um, other writing about. So maybe that's something we can uh, kind of work on and <laughs> yeah. you know kind of draw there um, because yeah, I mean, visual exegesis comes out of the art world, doesn't it? Initially, yes. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. So, I mean, visual exegesis probably we don't have to keep using the technical term that people sure. don't know. <laughs> we can. It's, yeah, that's it's fine. Being attentive to the visual and, and the, the visual aspects in the text are not just the description that sort of provoke our imaginations, but it's even just attentiveness to how many times the author uses the word see and mm-hmm. look as opposed to hear and speak. So, sure. um, in this text, there's a lot of revelation that's like the Old Testament yep. and like the prophets. With, uh, but I think one of the fundamental shifts is it's far more visual and visually dependent mm-hmm. in that most of the vision is about, look, John, write what you see, not write down what you hear. Mm. And when we think back to the prophetic texts, there might be a visual sign, there might be a theophany or some experience of God, but it's usually writing what you hear. Mm. Uh, that's, that's, that's an important and an interesting distinction, which I yeah. think most of us actually miss. Yeah. So even think of like Moses and the burning bush. Yes, there's this visual image of a burning bush that grabs his attention, but then everything that's communicated that's that's the heart of the message is something he hears God speak mm. in that story. And so, that gets reversed in Revelation. Mm. So obviously there's a key difference between seeing and hearing mm. then. Well, what Can you kind of briefly talk about some of the ways that plays out in the text? I think seeing is probably more uh, emotive than hearing. Mm -hmm. People who are musicians might want to (laughs) disagree. But where the ancient world, like our contemporary world, was incredibly visual. Mm -hmm. So think of how how familiar certain, you know, everyone knows what a McDonald's arch looks like or a Coke can or we're surrounded by visual advertising, visual propaganda, visual mediums that, that inform us of all sorts of things. They can be familiar, they can be frightening. And the ancient world was very similar. The Roman Empire, we know, communicated a lot of its values uh, through visual means. Big public statues, coinage that had uh, clear references to the emperor and framed a certain way so that you would know how important he was. <laughs> you know, these kind of things. Uh so I think the visual can be more provocative and it also evokes the imagination quite deliberately. And uh, I, I'm not an expert in this, but other people have written about uh, ima- imagination in terms of, you know, when our imagination is provoked, it, that again taps straight into a emotional part of us. Mm-hmm. And uh, so when I talk about this text as rhetoric, I think the author does want to change hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. And this is his primary way of doing it, 
is to almost bypass a logical part of your brain Mm -hmm. and appeal to that imagination that will make you feel things and then believe what he's saying. Which is interesting because in in the way that... The, the first century would have seen the text. I mean, we, we have these, well, let's call them paratexts today, mm-hmm. right, which can, in, uh, inform is not even right. I'd, I'd say probably influence overly mm-hmm. a lot of the time how we read the text. But in terms of a first century audience, you don't have any way to visualise this text except through hearing it first. So yes. it's kind of ironic in that sense, isn't it, really? Yeah, it is, because you have to imagine. Although what I would say is that this that John is using a kind of a mixed bag of images, if you like, uh-huh. uh, from the Jewish tradition, certainly the Old Testament, but also actual images from the Greco-Roman world around him mm-hmm. that would have been familiar. So there's enough familiarity for people to picture it. So um, Michelle Fletcher actually has mm. written a book called um, Revelation is Pastiche, yes. which I think is a helpful way of kind of describing what you're saying. Yeah, definitely. That pastiche of... of he, he draws from all sorts of places when mm. we unpack the levels of images, yeah. And, and, and not that we're talking about Michelle, <laughs> but no, no, you know, no, she, she kind of draws together um, talking about Westerns, right, and how Westerns draw on each other yeah. in order to, you know, these are common tropes where you see the guy walking down the street with his hand next to his gun, you know what's going to happen because yeah. you've seen it a thousand times before sort of thing. So that's what, of, what you're sort of talking about here. Yep, I think that's definitely. And we can miss some of that because these aren't images that are familiar to us. Mm. But I, what I tried to argue in my book was that um, I think the images that we have to do some work to understand would have been more familiar to a first century audience. Yep. And, and so they would have got the Western reference equivalent. Mm. <laughs> uh, they would have sort of known what, what John was alluding to. So is this why then John never explicitly quotes the Old Testament? That's a good question. Because, it could be that's part how, of it. That, Is that's that how what you I've think? understood it. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of go, well, it, it's so it's so much a part of their world and, and so much a part of his identity mm. that he, he doesn't need to bother almost. Yeah, it just – yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think he's just so steeped in it mm. that it informs all these phrases and his images and his language without – yeah. And it's fairly clear that his audience is too – Yes. Um, so, you know, wh- whereas I think with, for example, the Gospels, what you have is a bit more of a, an apologetic document, if you like, mm. I- in some senses. Mm. Um, so, you know, in some ways it is important to kind of have those quotations perhaps yep. in order to, to be a bit more convincing. Whereas yeah. this is a bit more of an insider document, if you like. Yes. And I'd probably say most of the Gospels are a bit earlier than this as well. Yes. I mean, so one of the things you might notice if you read through Revelation it, it, for the listeners is – he doesn't bother retelling the basic story of Jesus. That's a really he, good point. He, he assumes they know it. And yes. so when he talks about a lamb who was slaughtered but has overcome death, you know, which is clearly a reference to the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, he assumes they'll get it. So you're only allowed to read Revelation sort of 20 years after you first become a Christian. <laughs> yeah, then, something like essentially. that. <laughs> it's probably not the best text to start with. <laughs> no, no. But, but inevitably, we, I think most, most um, new converts are fascinated by it. Yeah. Naturally, I think, yeah. you know, because it is interesting. Yeah. A- and so what you're doing in terms of drawing out, um, I guess, visual aspects of it is, mm. you know, very natural for a lot of people. Yeah. Except that for most of us, when we come at it, we're, we're trying to match it with something in the 21st century world. Yeah. A lot of the time, right? You know, like locusts, helicopters or what have you. Yeah, yes. Which is, you know, one of the ways it's been interpreted. So, Mm. 
it is interesting to to kind of think through first century um, ideas of uh, of visualization. Then, so what what are some of the more shall we say obvious ones? Then, do you think the obvious visual images yeah. in this text? Ooh, that's tough. I think. Um, Okay, so let we can start in chapter one here. I think uh, how long have we got? Yeah, how long? We'll go by verse by verse. See you in six hours. That's right. Um, so in the image opening image of Jesus, which is where he's described as the Son of Man in chapter one sixteen, he's described as having seven stars in his hand, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a coin we have from the first century of um, issued by the Emperor Domitian that has his sun on a globe surrounded by seven stars. Mm. So there's this iconography that already exists as, and seven is the number of perfection in this text or totality, uh, here denoting power, so a huge symbol for Jesus' power, but one that maps onto a wider cultural understanding of this is what the power of a ruler looks like. So it's like having um, stars and stripes in your background. Yeah. If you like. Yeah, the right kind of flag in the background, or, right. or or these days if you put on a Trump MAGA oh, be hat, careful. yeah, 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 absolutely, <laughs> right. But yeah. but so you know, you put on that red hat with MAGA, and people know it. It signifies a whole bunch of stuff. And, and, and yeah. perhaps this is the most frustrating thing I found about being a biblical scholar, which is that we're working with two thousand years later, yeah, where a lot of these illusions just whoosh right over our head. Yeah, we don't get it because we're not steeped in the same visual references that they are. Uh, yeah, we have we have to do a bit more work. So it strikes me then that your task is almost an impossible one. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is because you've got to. Well, you, you're leaning on a lot of different things. You're leaning mm. on basically any anything we have coming out of that world from archaeology, history, literature, you know, visual um, art, and all this. Mm. So to try and immerse yourself in that world to, to try and pick up on illusions. Yeah, trying to – yeah. And scholars like Stephen Friesen have written whole books on this, sort of literally kind of walking readers through what the architecture and images were in these ancient ancient towns of Pergamum and Ephesus so that we can have a sense of what that world would have looked like for John mm. and his readers, his congregations. I've got to try and get Steve on the uh, on the podcast as well, actually. Yeah, yeah, he's an, he's an amazing scholar. <laughs> so, so what what other what other clear things jump to the fore? I mean, it, in my mind, you know, some of the most um, well known ones mm-hmm. out of the book would be, you know, your four horsemen. Yes, and then um, you know these sort of competing imageries um, of women, yep. good and bad. Yes, and, and you can almost form this sort of axis of women <laughs> in the text for yeah. better or for worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah do you want to kind of speak to one of those? Or? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, one of the classic images, and I don't like using this word, but she's known as the Whore of Babylon yep. um, in Chapter 17. And, I mean, that's a fascinating image for what John's doing with his visual, visual exegesis because uh-huh. she's, she's riding the beast. If you look at the way she's described, she's in all the symbols of wealth. Purple clothing, scarlet clothing is royal or wealthy clothing. She's wearing pearls and gold. Um, but then he kind of – so at, at first glance, and even in the text, John marvels at her. She's she's seductive. She's beautiful. I think we're supposed to be slightly seduced by her. Uh, and then you unpack the images and you realise she's got this cup in her hands that is the blood of the saints. 
and she's got a tattooed name on her forehead and we know that slaves were often tattooed on their foreheads Mm -hmm. in antiquity. And all of a sudden what looks like an image of beauty and power starts to be subverted as something ugly. Mm. Uh, and, And we know in that text John is playing on an image of Rome, the goddess Roma, who, again, we've got coins and other artworks in antiquity that depict her sort of lounging with the seven hills and he's sort of uh, got a bit of a play on that going on. Mm -hmm. Um, So we can miss that reference, but I think an ancient uh, reader would have known pretty quickly that this is like a warped description (laughs) where part of the unveiling, part of the the revelation that's going on is that Rome is not this beautiful goddess Mm. that you all bow down to, but she is, you know, evil and violent. Yeah. Uh, and he's, he's, but he's doing that by sort of subverting an image that would have been familiar to them. Mm. And, 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 you know, we, we see that in the next chapter or subsequent chapters rather, yeah. where, you know, that the lament and yeah. look at all the expensive things that we can't buy and sell anymore. Yes. Yeah. Everyone, <laughs> everyone's sense. sad they're not getting rich anymore. That's with, right. With Rome. Yeah. So, so that, that's interesting. Um, so, some some scholars have argued, however, mm. that it's almost too obvious, <laughs> you know, with, with the Seven Hills thing and, and, yeah. and with Roma. So, so I mean, wh- wh- where do you kind of sit with that? Yeah. Is there something that's – I don't know if too obvious is yeah. it? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know there are some scholars who think it's actually about Jerusalem and they, yeah. they reject um, the reference to Rome. For me, with, again, the clear reference of the beasts and this number 666 being a reference to the emperor uh-huh. – uh, I think it's it's pretty clear that the the where John locates evil and the oppression of Christians is in the Roman Empire. Mm. Um, yeah, but but what I would say, I guess, as a concession, is that we are in the world of symbols and images and metaphors, mm-hmm. and so they can work at multiple levels. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which makes it even more frustrating in many ways, doesn't it? <laughs> then, <laughs> Because, you know, you, you can... And, and, you know, I, I work with Revelationist performance a lot nowadays. Mm. And one of the things I've been trying to draw out is that on, on several levels, the text does operate simultaneously at different levels of meaning. And yeah. it's okay for that to happen, but it's very difficult for us who prefer simplicity. Yes. And we want... We want one thing to mean one thing, not, yeah. Yeah, that, well, that, that's right, and 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 so it, it's it's difficult to kind of work with that because we we're we're not used to this level of nuance, I suppose. Mm. And would you say that performance in working at multiple levels that is both a kind of intellectual and emotional? And how would you describe those levels? I, I, I yeah, I, I think it, it is in the sense that you know you you're, you're seeing well, it's that seeing hearing paradigm yeah. again, you know, that we were talking about that. You hear one thing and you see another thing and you're conflicted. Yep. You know, um, here's the 144,000. Actually, no, it's not. It's a huge multitude. What are you going to do? You know, <laughs> here's a lion. Actually, it's a lamb. Oh, yeah. you know. What? what? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So so I think like, like what you're saying, you know, John really does play with his audience a little bit, in, mm. if you like, yep. and, and uses these rhetorical, visual, what have you, different techniques in order to bring his message across. Yeah. And it's helpful for you to remind us it is performance because, of course, we know ancient audiences would have heard this being read. Yes. And they didn't all have a personal copy that they're studying in Bible study. <laughs> um, you know, so, you know, there is a sense that we need to let the whole image wash over us rather than get – I mean, it's the work of scholars to get down into the nitty-gritty, but mm. we've got to come back to the way the whole 
kind of works together, I think. And that's one thing I found interesting in reading, you know, work like yours and, and a few others is that, you know, we, we, we do tend to go down to almost microscopic levels. Yeah. But then to, it, it's difficult then for us to take a step back and look at it as a totality, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I, it, it's a horrible question to ask of any scholar, but I do think we've got to pause and ask ourselves, um, you know, the so what question. Yeah. You know, you've done all this analysis, but so what? Does yeah. that make any difference to what you think this means or mm. what the purpose of it is? Yeah. So let me let me change tack a little bit. Yep. One of the things I've really admired about your work is that you've been willing to kind of call things as they are. Okay. And, and, and critique some of the, well, the not so helpful things we find in the text. Mm-hmm. Um, often coming out of 21st century interpretations, admittedly. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, things like the question of um, how we treat women, mm-hmm. uh, violence, yep. uh, and so on. So, um, you know, what, what, what are some of the more problematic things that you found in the text? Oh, how long have you got? <laughs> yeah, I realise it's a huge question. So let's start with the women. Uh, there, there is an issue in this text. I mean, most of the Bible is written through the lens of men. That's just yes. reflects an ancient reality. Um, but in this text in particular, women, and again, they're used as metaphors, but it, it can affect how we then think about gender. Is, is the way the problem with the way symbols work? They can be yeah, very powerful. So we've talked about the whore of Babylon. She's the mother of all whores. She's depicted as horribly evil and and then her own demise is very violent. She's yep. literally torn apart by yep. the kings that have kind of been part of her court or however you want to think about that. Um, and then the flip side image is Jerusalem, New mm. Jerusalem as the bride, uh, who's, again, beautiful and rich and adorned. Uh, but it can play into stereotypes that we know full well exist in our contemporary world mm-hmm. as they have for centuries between kind of the virgin and the whore, pure and impure, mm-hmm. in really problematic ways. So we've got to remember John is talking about cities here and their metaphors for cities and it was just um, typical in antiquity to feminise cities. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one woman other people might know from Revelation is Jezebel. Mm-hmm who appears in one of the letters early on as a – and I I actually secretly quite like Jezebel, I have to admit. <laughs> I know as Christians we're not supposed to. <laughs> but And that's not her real name. So je- there's clearly this female teacher who is teaching different things to John and she's a threat, mm. right? And the way he deals with that threat is to label her as Jezebel, mm. who is a foreign non-Jewish queen mm-hmm. in – the king's narratives in the Old Testament. The power behind the throne, actually. Yes. From memory. Yeah, that's right. She's, again, an incredibly powerful woman who does some pretty bad things. Mm. Um, Oh, who doesn't in the Old Testament? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That's why we're New Testament scholars, right? (laughs) Exactly, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Even the good kings in the Old Testament do bad things. Mm. Um, So, you know, labelling her Jezebel, again, does a whole lot of work, Mm -hmm. Um, but it unfortunately does some gendered work. It taps into that old Mm. stereotype as women who seduce, who lead you astray, who are deceptive, which of course goes all the way back to Eve. Mm. I think we've got to be able to recognise and name those things mm-hmm. be- precisely because of what I said before. It can play too easily into contemporary understandings of gender where all women get painted with a... Yeah. I mean, obviously I'm biased, I'm a woman. But as someone in, in Christian ministry, I have had this, that women mm. women can't be leaders because you're more likely to either deceive or be deceived. Mm. Um, yes, it ends yeah. up being very binary, doesn't it? Yes. Unfortunately. Yeah. 
And, and Revelation can be a very binary text. Yeah. You, you're good or you're bad. You're in or you're out. Mm. Um, and so the, the female images do the same kind of work. So how do we, how do we deal with that, I guess? <sighs> you know, I mean, I, mm. you've said obviously recognising the, the fact of metaphor. Yes. But, you know, are, are there other strategies to kind of deal with this? Because it's <laughs> it, like, you know, it, it can be problematic. Yeah, it can be. Um, I think we've got to name it. And the, the other thing to do is to, I guess, uh, I say this cautiously, I don't want to change the Bible, but sometimes to reread a story and maybe change the gender uh-huh. and see how that see how that sounds, see if we get the same resonance as if you gave yeah. Jezebel a different name. Yeah, um, Peter. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> John. Um, would we then recognise, because it's taken a very long time for people to actually recognise, because she's called Jezebel, it's been, mm. oh, this evil woman who was leading people astray. Well, I think she was, a, she was just another prophetic leader yeah. that clearly had a following and so she was a threat. Um, and maybe what she was teaching was actually not that dissimilar to Paul because yeah. Paul doesn't have the big issue with eating meat sacrificed to idols that John does. Yep. So it's not that she was even non-Christian necessarily. They just had a disagreement. So we could call her Apollos then perhaps. Yeah, right? something like something. that. Yeah, yeah, and see what that does to the way you hear the text. Well, that, that's an interesting suggestion. Um, it actually reminds me a lot of what Lin-Manuel Miranda does with Hamilton. Yeah. Right, in that you know you, you change the um, ethnic identity or racial identity <laughs> of people and all of a sudden you get a – the, the story kind of slaps you in the face a little bit more. Yeah. So that's an interesting suggestion. And actually, yeah. I, I wonder if I have got the space to pursue that <laughs> as a performance. I think it would be really interesting. That, that would be you fascinating. Know, flipping, like having, having a female John, uh, Jane maybe. <laughs> yes, and, f- and flipping the way we talk about cities, if you could find other, mm. like what's, what's the stereotype of the terrible male versus the wonderful male kind of yeah yeah uh, I don't <laughs> the know Australian how. cricket team <laughs> yes or something you know <laughs> yeah no, that, that, that's interesting and yeah. you know that, that is actually a really helpful way of of perhaps looking at the text where it it, it challenges us without you know kind of throwing the text out which is what a lot of people do unfortunately mm. you know which, which is what we obviously as revelation scholars we want to try and avoid yeah that's which right is, you know either polarizing or throwing it out yeah, and there have been feminist scholars who've who've sort of said there's nothing life giving in, th- in this text for women, mm. uh, and I would disagree with that assessment. I think, when again, when we read the whole of it, and that all creation ultimately gets caught up in this New Jerusalem, uh, this you know wonderful vision at the end of a place that embraces all nationalities. Um, we assume all genders. It's not just male at the end. Uh, you know, it is inclusive and I think there's definitely a, a place for women in, in that vision of hope. Mm. And, and of course, <laughs> one thing I, I like to kind of like to point out is that, you know, even at the end of time with the city, yep. there's still people outside coming I in know. and out. Which is a really, it messes with you and your um, theology of salvation if you think about it for too long, I think. It does. It's It's not, you know, Revelation gives us a lot of, fodder for thinking about end of the world and heaven and hell but um it's by no means clear yeah (laughs) there there is a sense that salvation might be ongoing even in this new place Mm. yeah we should talk about the violence of the text though does that that. does that worry you look i have written a couple of um shorter defenses of the texts uh myself Mm -hmm. And, and, and for me it's been when when i've looked at it and i'm actually planning on doing a bit of work 
on this when I get a chance. Um, mm. What I've seen is that within the text, a lot of the violence is basically done by God. Mm-hmm. And in fact, if, if you look at human action within the text itself, I find you've got the faithful believers mm-hmm. who do good things mm-hmm. and you've got the bad guys who do bad things. But the faithful believers never enact violence. It's always pretty much the exclusive domain of God or people who are evil. Yep. So, so to me, that helps mitigate a little bit of it. In this, not, not in the sense that saying violence is okay, but saying that in that worldview, in that understanding at that time, violence is the domain of God and God gets to prosecute, yep. if you like. God gets to kill. Um, but humans who call themselves faithful followers don't. Yeah, that would be my read on it. I mean, w- no, I, where I, do you sit with that? I agree entirely. I uh-huh. think one of the few verses that's a direct call to followers of the Lamb uh, is in eighteen six, I think, which is um, "Come out of her, my people." So God's God's issuing judgment in that very moment on Babylon or Rome, this whore of Babylon. Uh, but his call to those being faithful to God is to remove themselves from her so that they won't receive the violence but also they're not participating i don't see any directive in the text as as you're saying for christians to take up arms or to enact violence that's never Mm. never anything christians have violence done to them yes which is fine yes (laughs) according to the text yeah yeah they're 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 martyrs and persecuted and yeah yeah so i agree with you i i think we there is a theological tension for me in how violent god is but I, i think it, it makes some sense if we put it in its ancient context. It doesn't remove all of the difficulties of thinking, no. uh, you know, of God behaving this way, except that, again, within the narrative of the text, it is about vindication. It's about fixing an injustice. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, one of the biggest theological vessels that many, well, many of us and many of our students face is, you know, how to reconcile even Jesus with God, yeah, <laughs> right. You know, non, no, well, semi non-violent Jesus yep. with with you know God who who does these things. So it is a constant challenge. I feel it is, and in this text, there's a meeting halfway because Jesus comes out as that figure on the horse with the sword in his mouth, yeah. and uh, you know, at at the very least, as a symbol of a of a judge capable of violently judging. Mm. Um, it's not quite the pacifist jesus some no. people want to see in the gospels <laughs> no well that's right and, and and we we do see uh theologies that are influenced by that yeah i mean even today you know there, there's sort of this christus victor type thing mm. that, that floats around a lot where you know jesus is uh well nowadays he's probably got it you know an m16 or something <laughs> yes and, and he goes around enacting judgment which you know you can find in this text yeah i'm actually writing an article about that at the okay. moment um and again, it's not unproblematic, although I think it is about vindication and, and judgment and justice. But it, yeah, you, you can find it in this text very much. I was going to say, there's a, f- a book called Justice and Judgment. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. On the Book of Revelation. That's right. Yes. So, so, okay. Um, talking about that then, um, vindication, justice and judgment. So what that leads us to kind of conclude then is that this is a... This is a text which has a very explicit purpose mm-hmm. then. Um, do, you, do you want to comment on, on what you see that as being, I guess? Uh, I mean, Hoping it's explicit would, for, yeah. for different people. Different people have very different takes on it, I've noticed. That's true. That, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I would say that primarily to the to the first audience, John is writing to people who are a minority in the Roman Empire who are persecuted, who are suffering for their faith. And he's persuading them to be faithful, to, to stick with God. <laughs> don't don't be seduced <laughs> back into worshipping these other gods of the emperor and stuff. Um, and to remain faithful. And I think the way he does that is by showing these images of God in heaven and that God is acting, that God sees and that God's in control. It's a reminder um, that even though down on earth you might feel alone and you might feel like you're suffering, God's got a plan and and that plan is unfolding. Uh-huh. Um, so it's primarily a call to be faithful, to stick with it, stick with faith. And you do that in this text by worshipping God and yep. by witnessing I think the, are the two main things. Is there uh, something I've I, forgotten? I, I normally say three. I normally say three. wait, wait, witness, and worship. That's good. Yeah. Yes, because waiting is part of it. The enduring. Well, there's a lot of come on, God. How long is this going to take? <laughs> there is. There is. <laughs> Which I quite like because it's a very human cry. Because mm. when we're suffering, it can feel like forever. Yeah. Um, how long? How long? How long, O oh Lord, until you you come and? I mean, we might say that right now, looking around the world. How mm. long, O oh Lord? Uh, when we constantly see so many examples of human suffering. Mm. Well, let's let's leave that there for this episode and then we'll come back and we'll do another episode with Robin and we'll probably go into even more controversial areas. So thank you for listening. Uh, thank you, Robin. Thank and you. And we'll be back with another episode soon. Bye.